I'm a mess. So, I'm a mess. So I need help. Not not just double prayers. I also uh, need my wife uh, to tell me when my microphone's upside down. She said I need to get professional help. <laughs> so I did. I went to see my son, and and he he hooked me up right, and he said, "Don't do any cartwheels, Dad." And my daughter always checks to see if my cross is hanging straight. So I, I need a lot of help when I'm, when I'm up here. And thankfully, I have family to do that. Mm. This is a belt that I used to wear. Hadn't worn it in a while. And I tried it on recently. It felt weird. It felt kind of awkward. My hands didn't like the feel of it. My pants and my waist weren't quite comfortable with it. But after a while, by the end of the day, I stopped noticing how weird it was, and it fit just fine. According to uh, Jim Garrett's message a couple weeks ago, belt of truth's pretty important in the full armor. Remember that? Truth connects to everything else. It helps hold it all together. So that means then that a different belt makes for a different life. Your belt makes a difference. In the same way, a belief that we agree with will affect all the other beliefs attached to it. And the decisions we make based on it. And even if that belief is uncomfortable at first, Time will make it more so. Whether it's true or false, the belt of our beliefs affects all of our other beliefs, all of our decisions. My sermon is about someone from the Bible who was pretty down, I'm going to say burned out, even though the Bible doesn't use that particular phrase. It's one that we hear sometimes in, in our culture. This person was burned out, but they changed their belt. They changed their belief. And they escaped the traps of the enemy. So if you would, follow along with me. I'm in 1 Kings chapters 17 through 19, found on page 309. Just kidding. I will be emphasizing primarily from chapter 19. Verses 1 through 18. Chapter 17 and 18 are the setup for it. If you are familiar with this story, you might be getting kind of excited. It's got a lot of excitement in it. It's fairly dramatic. Even for an Old Testament prophet story, it's pretty dramatic. This is the story about Elijah. This is what makes Elijah famous to most of us. It involves a drought. It involves a lot of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, and you remember what fun they are. It involves Mount Carmel, lots of godly victory in this story. But I want you to turn first to chapter 19, verse 4, the second half of verse 4 in chapter 19. Because Elijah doesn't sound very victorious in this verse. He says, he sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I've had enough. Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. 
victorious? Triumphant? This is the guy who just won over the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Triumphed over Ahab and Jezebel. All of that. And this is how he feels? I don't think burned out goes far enough. He sounds practically suicidal. Have you ever felt this way? I would guess most of us have at some point. Life's hard. This time of year is the hardest time of the year to be hopeful. It sees a number of people fall into depression and despair. Feelings of being burned out, worn down, exhausted, hopeless. The season of several consecutive holidays is over and pop culture Valentine's Day doesn't count. Sometimes that makes it worse. And then we have Lent to look forward to. Our feelings aren't helping us at this time of year. The weather is usually at its worst, taunting us with sunshine and 60 degrees only to drag us through sub-freezing temperatures, precipitation of all different kinds, and a variety of natural disaster scenarios. It's weatherman season. I bet Travis Meyer's insurance agent would make a killing if he asked the viewership of Channel 6 for donations. Can't let anything happen to that guy. This is the dark before the dawn. The winter before spring, because it's not spring yet. All that incredible, explosive life, the roar of green, isn't here yet. Won't be for a number of months still. Whatever the groundhog might say. It's the slowest, most tedious time of the school year. I used to call it the doldrums when I was in the classroom. Because the third quarter of the school year is always ten weeks instead of nine runs from the first week of January all the way to spring break. And nobody likes it. It is the time that guilt for being overweight, overindulgent, and for overspending comes to haunt us. We feel that nothing will ever improve. That all goodness and happiness is fleeting, and that all evil, misery, and disappointment is forever. Elijah could relate. In chapter 17, we read about the beginning of his ongoing battle with King Ahab. Elijah's role was God's prophet and advocate to the heathen and the non-committed, and he devoted himself completely. For more than three years, he watched his country and his people suffer a divine drought that matched their devotion to idols. Then he confronted the heathen king and the false prophets on Mount Carmel, and God displayed a bit of his glory and power. The people turned to their God. The false prophets were killed on the spot, and Elijah outran the king's chariot back to town. Woohoo! Mission accomplished. This was the culmination of a multi-year project. And Elijah spent lonely years as the only public official devoted to the God of Israel's fathers. His life was threatened. He was sent to lonely places. 
And though God protected and provided for him the whole time, this was not an easy life. His emotional energy must have been pretty spent after the flaming on the mount. Think of how tired you might be after such a victory. And it was at this vulnerable point that an unexpected enemy hit him when he had no strategy in place, nothing prepared, and no reserves. Jezebel, lovely Jezebel, threatened death in less than 24 hours, and all Israel knew she meant it. Combined with his loneliness, his exhaustion, his grief over his people's idolatry, this fear pushed him over the edge in verse 3 of chapter 19. Elijah became afraid and immediately ran for his life. He went into the desert and he collapsed into sleep, asking God to take his life. We hear his plea in verse 4, but God asked him for more. In verse 10 and again in verse 14, God asks Elijah, why are you here? And Elijah gives his perspective. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Most of that was true, and we can see why he felt discouraged. In our lives, when we are spent, worn down, discouraged, and feeling alone, our enemy makes his best efforts to tempt us away from the truth, to get us to put on a different belt. He knows that when we're worn down and feeling alone, it's easier for him to get our emotions, to begin agreeing with a string of statements. And with that string, he can lead us to despair one agreement at a time. Always and never are some of his favorite words to use. Anybody said those words in the last couple weeks? He likes to convince us that the way it is now is the way it's always been and the way it's always going to be. That nothing will change because we're weak, we are hopeless, we are unworthy. He likes to start with something true and stir us up and then attach something false, like a hook with bait. We swallow the hook, and he can lead us into worse agreements later and keep us stuck there. I find myself tempted sometimes to hope for too much or for not enough. It's easy for me to want and to hope and to pray for everything to be as good as I think it can be. I've sometimes been accused of being optimistic. Just a little. I pray for my relationships to be good, for the relationships of the people I care about to be good. I pray for health to be good. I pray for politics to be the way I want it. I pray for people's behavior. I pray for my job. Pray for college football. Just kidding, not going that far. <laughs> Nothing is wrong with wanting and hoping and praying for godly things. But let's do a belt check. Will anything 
in this life be as perfect as it should be all the time? No. All of the people Jesus healed and brought back to life all died. All of the wine at Cana was eventually drunk up. Those 12 baskets of leftovers aren't still feeding people. They got eaten up too. And people were hungry again. My point is that this world is destined to be thrown out so that the new permanently good one will take its place. If we forget that, if we start looking for heaven on earth, if we start looking for perfection, in this life, if we start demanding it of ourselves or other people, we will be disappointed. God sends us blessings, but they are hints, tastes, previews, reminders of what we have coming. They are not meant to last, to remain unconquered forever, or to exempt us from the effects of sin and death. In Matthew 13, 30, Jesus said, let both the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest. The angels are required to separate the sheep and the goats at the judgment because they're mixed together right now and will still be then. Jesus reminds us that we are not on a path of progressive circumstantial improvement until he returns. So we must be careful with our expectations. Keep an eye on where our feelings would lead us for where our treasure is. Now while we are not to be naive or ignorant in our hopeful expectations of this world, neither are we to be cynical, frustrated, or despairing by focusing only on what is wrong with the world. Pining for the good old days both of these perspectives will blind us to the truth and lead us to burnout. It's important to wear the right belt. The right belt helps keep you balanced. Even if you don't understand everything that you believe in, the truth will set you free, as God was about to show Elijah. Look at chapter 19, verse 18. And hear what God said to him. I will leave 7,000 in Israel, every knee that is not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Wow! Shazam! Where'd God get these guys? Where have they been for three and a half years? Things were not as Elijah saw them. He was not the only one left. He had agreed with his feelings, fed from his limited vision, rather than asking for the truth. God had plans to involve other servants of his, not just Elijah. He had plans for further domination of evil, even beyond Mount Carmel, as dramatic as that was. He had plans even for Jezebel. So now that we've identified the hook, behind the bait, and we've brought our feelings out into the open to be examined by the truth, we have been informed by God's word, what do we do with those lingering feelings of burnout, 
disappointment and frustration with a difficult life. Well, let's look at what God did for Elijah. Verses 6 through 8 show us that God will provide what we need most, even when we don't know how to ask for it. Verse 6, Elijah looked, and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Verse 7, then the angel of the Lord returned a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, or the journey will be too much for you. Verse 8, so he got up, ate, and drank. Then on the strength from that food, he walked 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. We must listen to God, particularly his word. And Elijah does in several places. Verse 9, he entered a cave there and spent the night. The word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 11, go out and stand on the mountain at the Lord's presence. And Elijah does. Verse 13, when Elijah heard, he wrapped his face went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. A voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? In verses 15 through 18, God goes on to explain the plan that he has for other people as well as Elijah. God's perspective will likely temper both our good feelings and our bad ones. Have you noticed how Jesus would do this frequently? He got intense and confrontational with the arrogantly sinful, but he also gently confronted the vulnerable in their sin and mistaken beliefs. Go and sin no more. Gentle, but firm. No more means no more. No wiggle room there. Do you believe that I am he? He said to Mary and Martha grieving over the death of the one Jesus. And he says, do you believe in me? Shake up the wake here. Do not cling to me. This is Mary Magdalene. She loves Jesus. Doesn't a hug seem appropriate? Don't touch me. What about this man, Lord? What is that to you? You come follow me. These are the people who love Jesus the most, who knew him the best, that he invited to be with him. And he's confronting them too. Jesus healed many, but he called them to follow him in a difficult life that sometimes involved risking the very health he'd just given back to them. He seemed to contradict his friends and disciples as much as his rivals. Lord, I will come follow you. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's not for you to know the times the Father set by his own authority. I am the only way, he said. The way, not just a way, the way, the truth, the life. That's about as exclusive as you can get. 
Woman, what has your request to do with me? My time has not yet come. This is his mother he's talking to. You ever talk that way to a Jewish mama? Woman, what has your request to do with me? This seems awfully dismissive of our loving Lord, doesn't it? Lord, all these people are hungry. You give them something to eat. The one who provides for all of our needs, the bread of heaven, tells us to give them something to eat? Where is your faith? O ye of little faith, I love you dearly. Your faith is small. <laughs> Comedian uh, Tim Hawkins um, has a lot of funny stuff, but one of the things he said was, was uh, sometimes you just got to tell your lovely Christian brothers and sisters that they're wrong. <laughs> Jesus loves you, but you're annoying. Sit down and shut up. And yes, that does apply to me sometimes. Peter, zealous Peter. You cannot deny Peter's passion for his Lord. He's the one who whips out the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane. All these people around about to haul Jesus off. And Peter's like, no, you don't. And Jesus says, put that away. Put away your sword. You live by the sword. You die by the sword, Peter. Put it away. It's not what I've called you to. And with Pilate, what must Pilate have thought that night going home, lying in his bed, thinking through all those things when Jesus said, the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin? Mind-blowing. Jesus seemed to get in the way of our natural responses on a regular basis. He almost never said only what was expected. He nearly always went further, and most people were confused when he did. Wait, he's not taking on the Romans? thought he was the Messiah. Wait, I still have to forgive after seven times? Wait, he's the bread of life, and he's I am, and he's leaving? And he says that's a good thing? Huh? Elijah saw the bad things going on in Israel, and he was right to grieve them. But there was so much more he did not see until God showed him. And 7,000 still faithful. The further destruction of the house of Ahab. The distribution of the burden he thought he was the only one carrying. We are the same. There is so much we cannot see from where we stand. We must exercise faith and believe that our good God is still doing what he has always done. Winning against evil in unexpected ways using unexpected people. Our missionaries are such a good resource for us in this way. We get to hear about the good things God is doing all over the world here in this little building. News media won't give you that. In addition to sustenance and unexpected good news, God also gave Elijah what he sort of asked for, help in the mission. 
Verses 15 through 17, God outlines his plan to execute further vengeance on the house of Ahab through three other men besides Elijah. Elijah still had work to do, but he was not alone. And he now knew he was not the last link in the chain. What a relief. What an inspiration. What restoration God provided. Now, Elijah probably felt discouragement again before riding up to heaven. Feelings come and go. But I bet he never forgot the still, small voice he heard in that cave on the mountain. Or the message God said to him to sustain him when he was ready to give up. God adjusted Elijah's belt of truth when he showed Elijah the bigger picture. Elijah was then able to continue doing God's work with confidence until God took him home. So in this season of the year, the season of resolutions, which just show us how weak we are, season of post-holiday guilt, which only serves to turn our focus to our helplessness, let us learn from the story of Elijah's burnout how to let God's truth help us avoid despair, how we can experience God's strength in our weakness. All right, let's cue the PowerPoint. If blogs had been around back then, your Google feed might have sent you an article like this. The Cure for Burnout by Elijah. Burned out, in despair, weary? Here's what worked for Elijah. Number one, get away. Go somewhere you can focus without distractions. Our enemy loves to keep us from ever finding the truth by drawing us after distractions. You ever seen those videos with the cats watching the laser pointer? Cats. The enemy likes to play with the laser pointer. Don't fall for that. Our screens train us to be forgetful and distracted. They train us to think we're supposed to be constantly stimulated. Put them away for a while. Go somewhere blissfully empty or peacefully barren and just sit quietly for a time. Make your attention available for God by detaching from other things. Number two. Pour out your heart to God. Then plan on getting some rest and wait for it. The Psalms are especially helpful for finding a way to express where you are and what you feel. And God won't be offended if you don't like what he's doing. He's heard it all before from you. He'll likely hear it again, won't he? <laughs> God, are you sure you know what you're doing? But he's not going to give up on us just because we disagree. He's not going to punish us for not enjoying the hard life we're living in his service every single moment. He knows we can't live up to his perfection, so he lives in us to help us grow in that direction. Number three, take in what God gives you. Let go of other things. He knows what you need. Maybe you need a break from the news. It's not new anyway, is it? Maybe you need a break from the phone or the app 
for the series. I had to take a break from some gritty cop dramas that I watched when I realized that I was getting stuck in the anger and the frustration and cynicism that are often portrayed there. Maybe you stop listening to a particular artist, or maybe you pack away the game system for a time. You can't receive anything if your hands are full. Be willing to lay down the good for the better, and lay down the better for the best. That includes our very lives. Because this life is not the best. The best is yet to come. Number four. Shazam. I'm that powerful. Okay. Or not. There we go. Number four, plan rest time by saying no to things. When I was in college, I had to learn this lesson on a regular basis. Because in college, there's always somebody awake, right? There's always somebody hungry. There's always somebody who wants to go out to a movie. Always somebody who wants to study. Always somebody who wants to talk. Always somebody who wants to pull a prank. And at ORU, there was always somebody who wanted to pray, always somebody raising money for missions, and always somebody wanting to check out a new Devo. You can't do all those things all the time. Are you going to be able to read every book that's good in this world in your lifetime? No. You've got to pick and choose. Are you going to be able to fulfill every need that you see in this life? No. You've got to go where God wants you. You can't accommodate everyone, so please don't try. Decide now who you will please and who you will displease by what you accept and what you refuse. Maybe you need a to-don't list to help you focus on what's actually important. I'm giving this up so I can have this. I'm not going to do this right now because this needs doing and it's more important. And you need to fight for the time to rest each week and each year. Take time to review, to dream, to plan, to take inventory. This life is not a sprint, and thank God it is not a marathon either. It's a lot longer than any marathon ever run. So plan breaks, especially in the middle of hectic seasons. Get away when you need to. Shut the door. Don't answer the texts. Unplug that annoying contraption. Make room for God to fill your life. Some of those other things, the draining ones, will have no room to get in. I'm sorry, distraction. This throne is occupied. Number five. Delegate what you can. Put down what God calls you to lay aside. I always feel very heroic when I can fix something around the house. My wife says, oh, honey, it looks so good. But I've learned I have limits. <laughs> I'm now to the point in my skill level and humility where most of the time I can say, you know, that's something I can do or that's something we need to hire out. But there was a time where I thought I needed to learn to do it all. I tried. And then we had to hire a professional to fix it. 
God for good professionals. You don't have to do it yourself for it to get done good enough for God's plan. We bring paltry loaves and small fish. God feeds multitudes with it. We don't have to be good at anything for God to do good through us. So do what only you can do. But maybe it's time to teach someone else. To pass it on to another. To share the responsibility that you've shouldered for so long. God may have something better for you to do. You can't do everything in every season. Invite others to join you so the burden is shared. So that the stress can also be shared. Number six, obey him again. First Peter 4.19 says, So those who suffer according to God's will should, in doing good, entrust themselves to a faithful creator. He will take care of you again, as he has your whole life. It is his plan, his timing, his battle to win, and when he certainly will. We are unprofitable servants, doing only what it is our duty and our honor to be called to do. He makes our loaves and fish into miracles, if we will but offer them. And he has others involved in the plan, and they need us as much as we need them. Second Thessalonians 3.13, we are admonished not to grow weary in doing good. But this is the conclusion of the paragraph, admonishing the irresponsible to start pulling their own weight. It's not a command to never take a break and get burned out. Rather, it is part of God's plan for balance that is so thoroughly stated in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. A time for each thing in pairs of opposites. C.S. Lewis advised us to avoid setting up any one impulse as always being the right thing. Our desires, he said, are like keys on a piano. Every key can be correct in one situation and wrong in another. It all depends on the piece of music being played and the plan of the composer. It is God our Father writing the music in each of our lives. He knows when to push for this thing and when to let it go. He knows when to take this thing on and when to quit and pass it on to someone else. We have to read the right music. We have to choose to believe the truth and wear the right belt. We have to root out the thorns and thistles that would choke the word and make us unfruitful. So do a belt check. Take a look at your beliefs, your lifestyle, your habits. And if you're burned out, take Elijah's advice. Now is as good a time as any to make changes so that God fills more of your life. We only show our foolishness. We choose to live a life without him as our Lord and Savior. I'm going to close with a lyric video of a song by Toby Mac called Me Without You. It's a good reminder to stop leading God and let God.
you. Thank you, James. Good, clear word, brother. We appreciate it very much.